When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, everyone. I'm really excited to introduce my guest on today's Hidden Histories podcast, Lindsay Fitzharris. She is a best-selling, award-winning author and medical historian with her debut book, The Butchering Art, listed as one of the Daily Mail, The Guardian and The Observer Books of the Year in 2017. It was also the winner of the 2018 Penn E.O. Wilson Prize for Literary Science Writing and shortlisted for the 2018 Welcome Book Prize and the 2018 Wolfson History Prize. She is broadcast worldwide and runs her own blog and grisly YouTube channel called Under the Knife. We met at London's old operating theatre museum in London Bridge, which is the second oldest operating theatre in the world. This place has been crucial to Lindsay's research and immaculately preserved and managed by the staff here, who are also incredibly knowledgeable should you wish to visit. She isn't shy to talk about the bloody aspects of medical history, and people have been known to actually faint during her talks. I hope you all have strong stomachs. Lindsay Fitzharris. Welcome to Hidden Histories. It is such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. And we have been trying to arrange this we for have. a long time. I've been pushing back a little bit. Thank you so much for, for asking me to do this. And we found this incredible space to do it in, so that it's been worth the wait. It's amazing. You have brought me to the old operating theatre, which is tucked away uh, down like quite a little quiet street in London Bridge. So I was literally right. battling through the tourists <laughs> to get here. And it's right by Borough Market, so there's a lot of people kind of milling around this area, isn't there? Exactly. And I think the most surprising thing was when I came in I was faced with this very bizarre staircase that was literally the narrowest staircase I think I have ever had to climb up to get inside here. staircase but it's (laughs) worth it it's worth it when you get to the top it's the second oldest operating theater in the world and if these places still exist they always exist high up because it would have allowed the surgeons to have natural light skylights to operate at a time when there was no electricity so it's it's worth battling those scary stairs there is also a lift now um, but it's out of order okay. today <laughs> um, but for people who um, have mobility issues there is a way to get into this incredible museum and it is incredible so we are sat in an attic and it feels like you're in some kind of 
well, it's like grandma's weird attic. Yeah, <laughs> there's like, just so much stuff around apothecary jars. And- it's almost like how you'd imagine like a, a witch or a herbalist <laughs> to sort of have their house. It is absolutely amazing, and there's herbs everywhere. There's there's bottles, there's spices, but there's also incredible snake surgical skins. snake skins, snake skins, <laughs> <laughs> incredible surgical implements as well. So, what exactly what exactly is this place? Well, this is, as I said, this is the oldest, second oldest operating theater in the world. And the operating theater space itself, if you do have a chance to visit, is incredible. It's very small to our modern sensibilities, but uh, probably about 100 people would have been gathered in there watching these operations. In the Victorian period, there was even people that bought tickets to see these operations, and they would carry with them the grime and dirt of everyday life. This was a very unhygienic space before we understood germs. And before the dawn of anesthetics in 1846, of course, the patient was wide awake. So it was a very horrible, very painful experience. And you only went under the knife if you absolutely had to. So, okay, in a nutshell, <laughs> what is what is the sort of the history of surgery and medicine prior to the establishment? In, in a nutshell. <laughs> in a nutshell. In one minute, give us the whole history of surgery. <laughs> So so my book, The Butchering Art, which we'll talk about a little bit, kind of deals with this moment sort of right before anesthesia. So it opens with the first ever operation under ether in 1846 in Britain, um, which was done by a guy named Robert Liston. And when I was originally thinking about this book, I actually wanted to write about Robert Liston because he's kind of a larger than life character. Um, He was 6'2", so he's incredibly tall for the Victorian period, and he was the fastest knife in the West End, so he could hold you down and he could take your leg off in under 30 seconds, which is exactly what you would want um, from a surgeon if you didn't have any anesthesia. So Robert Liston was sort of this, this, as I say, bigger-than-life character, and one of my favorite stories is that when he was switching instruments, he used to hold them in his mouth. So these, he would put these bloody instruments in his mouth. And one time he was moving so fast, he took off his assistant's finger. And then as he was switching knives, he accidentally slashed the coat of a spectator. And the assistant died of gangrene, the patient died of gangrene, and the spectator died of fright. And it is jokingly referred to as the only operation that had a 300% mortality rate. So he was kind of this, this bigger-than-life character. And so when I was thinking about the book I wanted to write, I thought, this is my guy. But the problem is that Robert Liston doesn't push a transformation. He does perform the first operation under ether, but he doesn't discover it himself. It's discovered in America. And it's brought over. Liston doesn't think it's going to work. He calls it the Yankee Dodge. And it does work, though. It's a miracle. And so the butchering art starts at this moment, because I think... When people think about the history of surgery, if they've ever thought about the history of surgery, they tend to think of that being the moment we were ushered into the modern period. But actually, surgery became much more dangerous at that point because the surgeon didn't understand that germs existed, but he was more willing to cut into the body because the patient was now unconscious and he was more willing to go deeper into the body. And so as a result, these operations become slow moving executions. And I start right there. And the reason why I did was because my book is actually about a guy named Joseph Lister. And what was incredible about that moment in 1846, the first ever operation under ether, was that a 17-year-old Lister was in the audience. And I joke that I couldn't have written the script better. So you imagine these spaces. So if you come to this museum, you can imagine all these men crowded around the table. And sometimes there were spectators even on the floor and they would have to 
remove the spectators from the floor before they could continue, it would have been a harrowing experience, it would have been a tense experience, and it would have certainly been a painful experience. (laughs) (laughs) What sorts of surgery would have happened here in particular? So in this museum, this was a woman's operating theater. And the reason why they started, uh, they created the women's operating theater was because before then, there was no space for women to be operated on so that they were, they were operated on in the wards, which was really bad for the patient. It was really bad for the people having to listen to this agonizing operation going on. So they decided to create the space for female operations. But the kinds of operations that would have happened in the space that is now a museum were life and death matters. You only went under the knife if you were going to likely die anyway as a result of not doing it. So you had amputations. You know, again, if you broke your leg in this period, it was a compound fracture. It could get infected. If the limb got infected, it had to come off. And that didn't guarantee that the infection, it would stop the infection. And of course, because surgeons didn't understand germs, they could infect you anyway when they were taking your limb off. Um, This was a time when surgeons didn't wash their hands or their instruments. Uh, They carried with them a cadaverous smell of rotting flesh. And they called it good old hospital stink. So when you come to the old operating theater, imagine not just the crowds, but imagine the smell. Imagine the, t- the terror in the, in the air um, and what it would have been like to be a patient in that period. And what it would have been like also to be a surgeon. It would have been a very scary thing to walk into an operating theater and have to face this patient who was awake on the table and try to save their life. It's interesting because before we began recording the podcast, you said that one thing um, that you loved about writing the book was challenging people's perception that the past is a romantic place. Yes, I'm just demolishing. If if people come up to me, you know, a lot of times as a historian, as you know, people will say, wouldn't it have been delightful (laughs) to live in the past? No, I don't even think I'd want to travel there for a day because I have a knack of getting sick or it would be my luck that I would twist my ankle. It It would be a disaster. Life was cheap and short at times. And, you know, if you got past a crucial period of childhood, when, you know, when you think of your childhood today, you think of vaccinations and antibiotics and things that um, helped you get better. So childhood's a very dangerous period. If you got past that sort of dangerous period, you did have a good chance of living into an older age. But there were just so many diseases. Syphilis was rife. Um, It was so rife in London, in fact, in the 19th century that there was no nose clubs because in the tertiary stage of syphilis, your nose falls off. Um, And so they had these no nose clubs pop up and people would gather together and they would toast the fact that they had syphilis and that their nose had fallen off. Um, And I'm very aware that there's people walking around right now listening to this. But, but there were just so many things that you could die from. The common cold could kill you. Again, before antibiotics, before mass vaccinations. And one of the things I talk about in the butchering art is that these people like Lister who went into medicine were risking their lives because they were exposing themselves on a daily basis as well to sick patients. And of course, a lot of them did die in medical school. Um, One of the common ways that they died was they would be dissecting a corpse, they would cut their hand and they would get some kind of bacterial infection. So it was, you know, it's, it's easy to look back and kind of make a caricature of these people, but it was a very noble and brave thing to go into medicine. So what, as a medical student, was it, was it predominantly students that would be observing operations? It, it depended on the hospital, depended on the, the space. Um, certainly a large part of the audience would have been medical students, but there would have been VIPs, just people with no medical background that just came in to see the operation. 
a lot of people ask me, were the Victorians particularly morbid? But I have 136,000 followers on Instagram, and I remind us that we are just as morbid. I want to that. Yeah, we, <laughs> we have that curiosity, don't we? Yeah. Um, and so we can't just necessarily say, oh, they had this morbid sensibility. I think the Victorians were yeah. obsessed with progress in science and medicine. And so they weren't just coming into the operating theater to see the sort of life and death, bloody struggle. They were coming to see the latest invention, uh, whether it be ether or whether it be some kind of procedure. Uh, some kind of instrument that was being used. So there was a curiosity about progress and how medicine was faring at that time. Which is no different, really, to, to today. I mean, we just have it on our TV screens. We have it on Instagram. We have it on yeah, Twitter. We have it in movies. Like, they didn't... It was just a different way of, of observing exactly. this gruesome reality. And, and I think, actually, we're probably more morbidly curious because, unlike the Victorians, we are not exposed to death that frequently. I mean, there's probably people listening who've never even seen a dead body, whereas for the Victorians, that would have been a very common thing, uh, especially for women. Women cared for the dead. They washed the dead. They laid the dead out in, in their houses. So death was very much around the Victor Victorian period, and it was very seen as well. Whereas today, think about how many people die in London every day. Do you see these bodies? No, because everything is kind of hidden. And um, there's a lot of people who say that that's sort of an unhealthy aspect of our culture and that it makes us, you know, almost romanticize death. And you see how it's portrayed on TV, for instance. Um, and the only kinds of deaths that we really talk about are spectacular deaths, you know, something that's been very violent or unexpected. We don't really talk about natural deaths and how people die every day and how we deal with grief. But that's a whole other subject that I'm passionate about. But there's there's many great books on, on those subjects. And I like to see that movement, you know, kind of taking back um, and taking back this subject and putting out in the public arena. But I think we definitely have a morbid curiosity today that was absent in the Victorian period because they would have been exposed to death a lot more. OK, that's interesting. And so, OK, so if you are if you were a medical student, um, what would what would your life have been like? What would have, what sort of things would you observe? What sort of practices would you be doing? Well, Victor Victorian medical students, and at Lister's point when he enters in the eighteen forties, this is past the body snatching period. Much to the disappointment of some readers, that was a little <laughs> bit earlier. But the laws had changed, and bodies were becoming more available. But one of my favorite chapters in the book is called the Dead House, and the Dead House was what we would call the cadaver lab. And the dead house would have looked similar in layout, possibly, to the dissection rooms, but they would have been very different. For instance, dissection took place in the winter because it, was, it, it slowed down comp, uh, decomposition, the colder weather. Uh, there would have been a fireplace at the end of the dissection room of the dead house, and so it would have been very stuffy. It certainly would have smelled very differently to what medical students experience today with preserved cadavers. These bodies would have been you know, sometimes in advanced de decomposing. It was just a very, very different time. And it was very dangerous as well, because as I said, you could cut your hand. You weren't wearing gloves. Um, a lot of people who are on my Instagram page always note this when I put these 19th century dissection photos up, no gloves, <laughs> you know, and they're just in there. And people, of course, were dying from infectious diseases at this time. So it was dangerous. So being a medical student at that time, you know, it would have been very grimy. And it was said that the medical students kind of wore these very fashionable, we, we tend to think of the Victorians clad in black. Yeah. But in the 1840s, when Lister joined medical school, that was before then, and people were kind of dressed brightly, almost gaudily. 
I always think of like the gangs of New York, like those costumes in that movie were absolutely perfect for the period that Lister enters medical school, those kinds of exaggerated top hats and the plaid and, you know, the, the garish colors. And the medical students would smoke a lot to mask the smell. And of course, this became dangerous when you introduce things like ether into the operating room. So there was a lot of accidents. There was a big learning curve, um, certainly when these drugs came about. Gosh, so let's talk about the man who changed it all, um, who has pretty much <laughs> made, made, made certain that we don't have to go yes. through the horrors that they did in the 18th, the 17th, 18th, 19th century in surgery. Joseph Lister, who, so he is the subject of your book. He's he a biography of Joseph Lister. Now, who was he and what was it about his research that changed the course of medical science. So Lister's name generally to a British audience is familiar, but a lot of people don't know why. Um, But they tend to recognize it when I say Listerine. Uh Um, So Listerine was named for him, but not by him. And it was used not in the 19th century as a mouthwash. It was used more commonly to treat gonorrhea. Uh, And I I won a big literary prize in New York last year, or sorry, in February. And I worked gonorrhea into my acceptance speech. Whenever I can say that, I try to get that in, but Listerine probably is not very happy about me talking about the original use of their product. But it was named named after him, as I said. It was named um, and created by a man in America. Lister had gone to America to convince surgeons of the existence of germs and of the need to adapt, adopt antisepsis. And so Listerine was born out of this. Lister was a Quaker. He was a British surgeon. And he was the first really to apply Louis Pasteur's germ theory to medical practice through the development of antisepsis. So I like to say that the butchering art is a love story between science and medicine because it's sort of the birth of scientific surgery. But it was a long process. A lot of people wouldn't accept that germs existed. Lister's techniques were complicated at first. They were hard to implement. The way knowledge is spread is, of course, very different to it is today. So people were mistaking a lot of his techniques. They weren't applying them right. So there's a lot of reasons why um, there's some resistance to Lister's techniques and his theories. But ultimately, he does convince the medical community. And he does that by going to the younger generation. And he trains them in his ways. He convinces them of the existence of germs. He trains them in antisepsis. And they go on to spread the gospel of Lister. And they become known as the Listerians. And they, they kind of go all over the world. But the older surgeons were resistant. And I think that it's, it's hard for us to understand because we know that germs exist. We wash our hands. Um, but think about it. There's this young guy and he's coming along and he's telling you that there's these invisible little creatures and they're killing your patient. And believe me, I can see them with this strange instrument called a microscope. And the microscope wasn't used very much in medicine at this time. And I think the other part was that he was telling these older surgeons that they were inadvertently killing their patients. And I think that was a hard pill to swallow. So the book is very much about Lister. It's not, I wouldn't call it a biography just because I don't take it all the way through to the end of his career. Um, It's sort of a snapshot of Lister. And I hope that what people see it as is Lister sort of a guide through this sort of tornado of a time. There's all these competing theories. The stakes couldn't be higher. Hospitals are grimy and dirty. In fact, they were discussing that one of the solutions to the problem was to just burn the hospitals down from time to time because that was the only way they would get on top of the infection rates. So it's, it's just an incredible period. And here comes Lister into the scene. 
And for various reasons, which I explain in the book, he is able to put these things together and solve one of the greatest medical mysteries of all time. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So how did he discover infection? Well, infection was around. So in fact, it was seen as actually a part of the healing process. Like pus was seen to be something that was a normal thing because it was so frequent. They called it laudable pus. And so Lister was aware of infection, but what was causing it was was he, he couldn't figure out and a lot of surgeons couldn't figure out and certainly not how to control it. But then he reads Louis Pasteur's germ theory Louis Pasteur was looking at why wine spoils. He was looking at these wine vats. And he was talking about how when wine spoils, it gets a certain kind of a sour smell. And Lister started to think, well, maybe that sour smell that I smell in wounds, maybe what's causing the wine to spoil is what's causing the flesh and the body to spoil. So he starts to experiment. So it's really Louis Pasteur who gives him the key to solving this mystery. And later in life, um, the two actually meet on the world stage. And at that point, Pasteur, I believe, had three strokes. It was quite sad. And he couldn't talk and he couldn't really even stand up. And it was this ceremony was in his honor. And Lister said about Pasteur what I imagine Pasteur would have said about Lister as well. It was really the coming together of science and medicine. And it was a world changing moment. And these two men were able to solve an incredible mystery and, and obviously save many people's lives in the process. So it, but it took it took Joseph Lister. Was it two years to actually publish his research after making the initial discovery? Yeah. So it was it was several years. He he had to wait for the right kind of patient to come in. That was uh, one of the issues. He wanted a compound fracture because he noticed that when there was a clean break and if the skin did, wasn't broken, there tended not to be infection. So he's thinking, well, whatever is infecting the wound is coming from the outside. So compound fractures tended to become infected. So he was waiting for that perfect patient. And that patient came in the guise of a young boy who had his leg crushed under a wagon wheel and he's brought to Lister. Now at that point, Lister could have, probably should have amputated because the boy, the, the wound was um, filthy and you know he'd been carried through the streets at this point. But Lister decides to use carbolic acid 
uh, which he suspects might kill some of the germs inside the wound, carbolic acid being an antiseptic. And it works. And he's able to save this boy's leg over several weeks. I think it's nine, nine or 10 weeks. And the boy walks out with both legs. Now, this is important for many reasons. A lot of people going into the hospital were very poor. Hospitals were places for poor people at this time. If you were wealthy or if you were middle class, you didn't come to the operating theater. You were operated on in your own home or possibly your surgeon's home. So these were places for the poor. And the poor relied on their mobility for their livelihood. So if you lost a leg, it meant so much more than just losing you know, a leg and losing some of your mobility. You could, you could end up in a very dire situation financially because of it. So he's able to uh, save people's lives. He's able to save their mobility, their livelihood. And so he does several experiments on several patients over a course of time, and he publishes his work. And of course, there was huge backlash. There was a lot of people who said that this wasn't a new idea, that carbolic acid had been used before, which was true, but it hadn't been used in the way that he was using it, which was the important key here. And the other thing is, there's a lot of people, as I've been going around the world, there's a lot of people that are really dedicated to this guy named Semmelweis, who was an Austrian physician. There's like a fan club of people out there. <laughs> and they like to challenge me um, if they haven't read the book. They're like, what about Semmelweis? Well, he's in the book. He is. He was an Austrian physician who was putting together this idea that if you wash your hands, infection rates went down on the wards. Um, and he noticed that when surgeons went from the dead house directly to the maternity ward and were birthing these mothers, that these mothers were getting purple fever and dying at incredibly high rates versus if they were if they gave birth with a midwife, the infection rates were much lower. So he's wondering what was going on. Now, he decides maybe they need to start washing their hands and the infection rates do decrease. And he's ridiculed for it. He ends up being put in an insane asylum and he dies this kind of really strange, isolated death. They call him the hand washer. Um, and, and people just couldn't get their heads around it. A lot of people challenge me and say, what about Semmelweis? Well, Semmelweis certainly was doing something special. He was putting these things together. But again, he's not understanding that it's germs. And until you have the germs, until you understand that it's germs, there's no systematic way to implement any kind of change. Also, and I do talk a little bit about this in the book, Lister claims that he never heard of Semmelweis um, until he actually visited the hospital that Semmelweis had worked in much later in his career. Um, but ideas, you know, they come about sometimes at similar periods and sometimes there is no connection. So there are surgeons and there are medical practitioners who are certainly working on this problem and getting closer uh, to solving it. Florence Nightingale, obviously, she didn't believe in germs, though, at first. She thought Lister was quite hysterical about the subject. Um, so there's, they're all in the book um, at, at some level, but it's really, for me, it's really Lister who solves the mystery because he takes germ theory and applies it to medicine. So what sort of what sort of chemicals were being used at the time? I say chemicals, you know, mm. like sort of anything that would would help Lister. You, you talk about carbolic acid. Was there anything else? And what, what exactly was carbolic acid? Carbolic acid is 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 a very corrosive. I think it comes from like coal tar. It has a really distinct smell, and in fact, it's so corrosive that over time, Lister would have this habit of holding his hands in his pockets later in life because his hands have been so chewed away 
by the carbolic acid. That was really one of the only ones that he experimented with because it worked. But what he found was that the carbolic acid was so corrosive that he had to mix it with things like olive oil. So that, because of course the wound could get really irritated and that could cause further damage to the tissue. So it was a process of really figuring out a balance between the solution of carbolic acid against some of the other um, ointments that he was using. He saves a lot of people's lives. I'd like to say that he saves everybody from Queen Victoria to his own sister. He performs a mastectomy on his own dining room table on his sister um, after several surgeons refused to do the mastectomy. And this is right at the beginning of when Lister is starting to use antiseptics. And of course, the mastectomy would have left a gaping hole. It would have been highly likely to get infected. So he decides he's going to perform this operation and he does and she survives and she doesn't have any infection afterwards. And she lives several more years before the cancer returns elsewhere. But it's, it's incredible to think about having to perform such a harrowing operation on a family member. And then much later, he saves Queen Victoria's life because she has an abscess under her armpit, which isn't a very sexy a sexy thing to suffer from, but she wasn't a very sexy queen, despite what those TV shows <laughs> yeah. like us to like us to think. But she had this this abscess under her armpit, and it got very infected. And he came in, he drained it, and he used his carbolic acid, and um, and probably saved her life because those kinds of things, if they get really infected, you get blood poisoning. So really incredible life he had. So by this stage, by this, by the time he was operating on people like Queen Victoria, his research was deemed to be acceptable and acceptable enough for him to be invited into the queen's chamber i think but there still was resistance and it's certainly whenever you're shattering a paradigm it's there's never you know that one moment like in a movie if this gets turned into a movie there'll be the one moment but trust me that's not how it works especially in science and medicine it takes a while so scotland where lister is mostly working for for a large part of his career scotland accepts his theories and antisepsis first they're more scientifically minded for various reasons that i go into in the book london is the most resistant and it takes a long time, and that's actually devastating to Lister. And so only much later in his career does he come to London and um, come to teach, and he starts to convert people. America's very resistant. Uh, even though it's after the Civil War, of course, people were dying of infection during the Civil War. These, these Civil War surgeons were packing wounds with mud. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was horrible. There was just no concept of hygiene and the battlefield, and so people were dying at high rates. But even so people thought that Lister was either crazy or possibly even dangerous. And so one of the last scenes of the butchering art is Lister going to America in 1876 to Philadelphia. And for one whole day, these surgeons get up, these doctors get up, and they denounce Lister in his practices. And then the next day, he gets to stand up and he gets to give his talk. And it's at that talk that the man who created Listerine was at and ends up being inspired by this talk. There was another man in the audience named Robert Wood Johnson, and he too was inspired. And he went on to create a company and they produced these antiseptic dressings. And that company is now known as Johnson & Johnson. So a lot of Americans will recognize that company. So Lister was able to change some minds, but it just takes a long time really before um, people accept it. And I think like anything, it's the younger generation trained up by Lister who starts spreading these ideas. So, I mean, he like if you think about what medicine was like or surgery was like, not that long ago, right? Not that long no, ago, yeah. And 
how much it has changed to today. We were talking about this earlier. It's, you mm. know, like routine surgery. Yeah. How much, how, how privileged we are now. We are, to live yeah. in the, I know. Live in the time that we live in. I know. When you think about the... When you think about the operating theater being such a hygienic place now, a sterile place, an, anti- an antiseptic place, an aseptic place, actually, and what it's like in these periods. So I really hope that people listening to this podcast come and visit this museum because you can really get a sense. Um, and actually, the operating theater, as it stands, is probably cleaner today than the course was in the past when they had to just, you know, operate one patient after the other. Sometimes the table wasn't wiped down. Uh, the instruments certainly were wiped down. And again, if you didn't understand that germs existed, why would you wash your hands? They were just going to get dirty with the next patient. Why would you wash your instruments? They're just going to get dirty with the next patient. So it was an incredible time. And as you say, not that long ago. Okay, so Lindsay has brought me into the original operating theater, which is eerily exactly really as it would have been Isn't yes that right? yeah the, the floorboards are original the table is original they have a replica also here because they do demonstrations i'm going to operate on someone very shortly <laughs> i'm going to do a, a victorian procedure but uh it, it's exactly preserved they stopped operating in this theater in 1862 which is an american always reminds me we're in the midst of the civil war um at that period but it's incredibly preserved and it's just if you haven't ever been here, you really must visit. And Google some images, too, while you're listening to this, because it is a great space. And one thing that really struck me when I came in here was actually how tiny it is. And you were talking earlier about the amount of people that used to crowd in here to yeah. watch the surgery take place. Yeah, 100 people, maybe, maybe more. Of course, now, when I did my book launch here last year, we were only allowed, I think, about 55 people. So we actually had to do it for two nights in a row because of fire uh, hazards. And you, if you heard that woman out there saying, oh, my God, that's exactly what we're talking about. <laughs> we're recording a podcast, and tell us how amazing this space is. <laughs> She said she was glad that she wasn't ill back then. And I I think that that definitely sums up this space perfectly. Um, We should be very, very happy we live in the 21st century. Happy not to have to have endured pre-anesthetic and pre-antiseptic operations like many of the women who would have been operated on here would have done. So you were saying really interestingly about the floorboards. These are original floorboards. So they must have, they must have quite a lot of (laughs) <laughs> a lot of wear and they might tear. Have a lot of wear and tear. They do. They're not bloodstained, um, but they are the original floorboards. Um, and um, actually, I filmed a book trailer, which you can find on my YouTube a channel called Under the Knife, and we had a full film crew come in here. But because everything is original, we had to be very careful. We couldn't use tripods. You just have to be very careful with everything here. So we had to recreate the operating theater in a studio beforehand to do the bloody recreation of an operation. And then we filmed a scene with a young Lister thinking about why his patient died right here. And this operating theater would have been here when Lister was a student at UCL. I don't know if he ever visited, but it would have been known to him certainly um and so 
So what sort of, what would it have looked like when the operation was taking place? What would have been sort of on the, I mean, we've obviously got the original floorboards and things, but they, I mean, they wouldn't have just been sort of <laughs> no. exposed to the... No, no, they put a, a lot of sawdust underneath to obviously soak up the blood. There would have been people on the floor, again, just seated there to watch the operation. They wouldn't have necessarily been doctors. They would just been VIPs or people who had bought tickets to this operation. Um, and so it was very, very crowded. In fact, one surgeon described it as if getting it was it was like getting a seat in a pit or a gallery of a playhouse people would be jostling for a better view and and the people in the back would be shouting heads heads every time heads got in the way and this is how the students learned and it was an incredible experience and of course the patient was awake um and it would have been just horrible. Uh, I can't imagine. I can't even get a teeth cleaning without some kind of numbing agent, let alone have my leg taken off. There's actually a, a little boy named Henry Pace. He's 12 years old in the 1820s, and he's told he's going to have to have his leg removed without any anesthetic. And when he's told this, he asked the surgeon whether it would hurt. And the surgeon replied, no more than having a tooth pulled. So poor Henry Pace was woefully underprepared when he was brought into the operating room. And he was blindfolded and he was restrained and he was so awake he remembers counting six strokes of the saw before his leg fell off. So it was a very horrible experience. Um, and definitely, I'm, I'm, listening, I'm watching this lady cringe across the way. I'm sorry to be sharing these horrible experiences. <laughs> this is the problem when you do a podcast out in the open. Um, but but it, it, it is an incredible space. And like I said, it's the second oldest one in the world and we're very lucky to have it right here in London okay so yeah do try and come here and experience everything that it has to offer and and walk the stairs walk the stairs there is a lift if you do have mobility issues take the lift but walk the stairs because it's an experience yeah that's an experience Um, yeah and you will be woefully aware of your fitness levels when you go up those stairs (laughs) thank you so much Lindsay so you are actually working on a second book. I am working on a second book. It's um, on the history of plastic surgery and a man named Harold Gillies who was rebuilding soldiers' faces during World War I. And I like to say that this is, it's a time when losing a limb made you a hero, but losing your face made you a monster. And what Gillies was able to do was to restore these men's identities. But the book is going to be much bigger than World War I. It's going to go into World War II. It's going to go into the first Hollywood facelift. It's going to go into um, the first gender reassignment, which was performed by Gillies in the 1950s. And... I may someday have time to write that book <laughs> if I stop doing but podcasts. Until then, um, you can follow. You can be followed on Instagram, Instagram? and you can get your daily, your See, daily your little daily bit of gore, morbid gore. I always put stuff up. Uh, the other day, I put something up about the Titanic, the the men yeah, who went around and it were embalming the victims and collecting the victims and embalming them on deck. So I'm always going down rabbit holes and I delight in taking people with me down those rabbit holes. So please join me on those social media platforms. What is your Instagram? It's Dr. Lindsay Fitteris. And my Twitter is Dr. Lindsay Fitz because it w- they wouldn't let me do the whole name. And my YouTube is Under the Knife. Thank you so much, Lindsay. Thank you so that was much. fantastic.
Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Mother's Day is just around the corner, and it's time to pamper the special moms in your life. In what better way than with Osea's limited edition skincare sets, featuring clean, vegan, cruelty-free products that are safe for your skin and the planet. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been making seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. This Mother's Day, Osea has two limited edition sets, perfect for gifting or keeping for yourself. Their Golden Glow Body Set includes three clinically proven bestsellers for silky, smooth, glowing skin, while the Glow and Go Facial Set has everything she needs to achieve spa-level results at home. They're so beautiful, you can skip the wrapping. For a limited time, you can save up to $48 on Osea's sets, plus get free shipping. That's Mother's Day made easy. Pamper the moms in your life and get 10% off your first order site-wide with code MOM at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code MOM.